From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Tuesday, July 31st. I'm Aaron Schachter. Olympic officials say a young Chinese swimmer should not be suspected of doping. Chinese fans on the Internet agree. Netizens were saying, if she's a cheat, then she will be found out. So let's wait until the results come out before jumping to conclusions. And later remembering when skateboard culture came to East Berlin. Wow, these guys are so cool. Where are they coming from? Are they from the West? They're just some East guys who were like dressed like West guys. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. U.S. athletes made some history on day four of the London Olympics. For the first time since 1996, the Americans took the gold in the women's team gymnastics competition, and swimmer Michael Phelps broke the record for most Olympic medals won by an individual athlete. His 19th medal was a gold in the 4 by 200 freestyle relay. 16-year-old Chinese swimmer Ye Shivan also added to her medal total. She won another gold in the 200-meter individual medley, setting an Olympic record in the process. Ye already had a gold medal after breaking the world record in the 400-meter medley. In a few minutes, we'll hear about Chinese reaction to suggestions that Ye might have doped to achieve those results. First, we get some more Olympic nuggets from the world's Alex Galifant in London. Erin, it's been a right royal day here. Um, The Queen's granddaughter, Zara Phillips, won a silver medal in the team eventing competition. Do you know what team eventing is? No idea. It's horse riding, jumping and and cross country, things like that. So a really good day for the royal family here at the Olympics in London. And uh, there's another big talking point that's been going on for a few days, the empty seats we see on TV. Right. Uh, And actually, I've I've been out and about today in London, away from the Olympic Park, and people have been talking about that and other things. Come and meet Wenlock, the London 2012 Olympic mascot, in the London 2012 shop on the fifth floor. This is the official department store of the London 2012 Olympic Games, a place called John Lewis. On my way up to the fifth floor, I chatted with two Australians who had the steely look of Olympians about them. Gino and Ismar Toromanovic, their brothers. Now, it turned out they were hunting for furniture, not medals, although they are in London for the Games. The only tickets that were available were the weightlifting tickets. They saw that yesterday, and the ongoing kerfuffle about empty seats in Olympic venues has been a bit frustrating for the brothers Toromanovic. We're not happy with that, but um, obviously beggars can't be choosers, and we did get our set of tickets, and we did enjoy the show, which was good enough. Some people really don't even get to see it and go, so, yeah. So your Olympics are over in terms of seeing stuff. You've seen the weightlifting, it's done. That's it. Yeah, well, there's no other tickets. <laughs> I mean, if those t- other tickets would have gone today, but there was nothing else available, so... So what's left is... 
Shopping. Shopping, yeah. Well, they could do worse. Oxford Street is one of Europe's biggest and busiest shopping destinations. And within this store, John Lewis, the official Olympic shop is the busiest spot. People are snapping up all manner of branded Olympic swag. I'm Luke Hoskins. And Lizzie Hoskins. The Hoskins family is completely bedecked in clothes covered in the British flag. It's like they've got severe nationality amnesia and need to remind themselves where they're from. Luke, who's 10, does taekwondo. Perhaps he's a future Olympian himself. Maybe. <laughs> but for now, it's just watching. I saw a bit of the cycling track. Yes. Today we're going to watch the beach volleyball. Funny Lizzie should say that. I happened to meet a member of Brazil's beach volleyball team in the Olympic shop, a personal trainer named Rossini Araujo. The guys competed yesterday and won this Great, great Britain. How dare you, sir? Yes, yes. When <laughs> yesterday 2-0, but in tomorrow and competing and against Canada. Okay, well, good luck with that. Today's a day off for the Brazilian beach volleyball team, a chance to go shopping for some Olympic trinkets. Out on Oxford Street, I bumped into Sandy Payton from Atlanta. He has an Olympic goal of his own, to collect all the Olympic commemorative pins that feature a heart. He underwent a heart transplant 10 years ago. I didn't think there would probably be but maybe 200. I've got over 350 now. Sandy wears a few dozen pins on his baseball cap, and he's soon joined by another American Olympic pin collector, John Smith. Smith is with the Outreach Bible Project, a Christian group. They've produced their own Olympic pins for London 2012. We have fun. We see each other with the hats, and we're attracted to each other right away. And most of the pin traders have been to more than one Olympics. Smith himself has been to eight. Alex, sounds like uh, the Olympic Games is a good spot for religious proselytizing. I think it is. And, you know, without wanting to be flippant about it, businesses, organizations of all kinds rebrand themselves along Olympic themes during the Games. And so do religious groups. There were loads of distinct Christian groups handing out freebies and talking to people on Oxford Street today, the main shopping district. One gave me a fly called The Ultimate Goal, which had a picture of a very Olympic-looking torch on it. Another group wore T-shirts that read, More Than Gold. All right. The world's Alex Galifant going for gold in London. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. As we mentioned earlier, Chinese swimmer Ye Shiven got her second gold medal today. Her first was controversial. The 16-year-old Ye broke the world record in the 400-meter individual medley. She also shaved five seconds off her previous best personal time. That prompted one top American coach to suggest Ye might have doped to achieve such an improvement. But International Olympic Committee officials say her performance should be applauded. Ye was tested after her final, but the results have not been announced. The BBC's Yuven Wu has been monitoring the reaction in China via social and official media. She says Ye has strong support back home. Well, she has been praised uh, at the official media. For example, People's Daily said, who would have thought the 16-year-old Ye Shiwen could have flared with such immense power? China Daily, uh, another newspaper said, her future does indeed appear bright. But Chinese you know, social media is bursting with a lot of anger directed at the Western media or Western journalists for even raising the possibility of using performance-enhancing drugs. I, I can imagine that people in China are quite frustrated by the criticism, the insinuation of drug use. But, but I think the problem is not just that she won with such a great time, but that her time 
this time around is so much better than her last best time. Five seconds, that, that's a big gap in swimming. Yes, the uh, swimming delegation, the head of the Chinese swimming delegation, was trying to answer these questions as well. I mean, he was cited as saying, because Ye Shiwen is only 16, she's still growing. And uh, during the competition, she was all the way behind and she was trying to catch up. And somehow that momentum carried her through and gave her this sudden spurt of, you know, speed to give her that gold medal performance. So basically, um, the Chinese media were trying to tell the world that it's uh, through hard work and through training that Ye Shiwen got the medal fairly. Is there anyone in China who suggests that it might be true? I mean, this isn't the first time that it's happened. There was quite a, a scandal at the 1994 Asian Games as well. It's true. Um, the, the 11 swimmers were caught actually uh, doping. But China would say that's all in the past. We cleaned up our acts. The doping control is very strict, both inside China and internationally. And uh, a lot of you know netizens were saying, if she's a cheat, then she will be found out. So let's wait until the results come out before jumping to conclusions. There is quite a culture of sport there, is there not? And training is quite intensive. It is. That's why I think Chinese people feel that, you know, the West doesn't understand how hard these youngsters train. That would lead to another criticism, which is we are supposed to have Olympic Games where amateurs take part. I mean, you have the basketball players who are totally professional players and tennis players. But, you know, on the whole, the majority of the athletes who take part in Olympic Games are amateurs. They are students. They have to pass their A-levels and whatever. But the Chinese divers, Chinese swimmers, it's their full-time job. Everybody knows that. They have to go through a very rigid training regime. And uh, it requires a lot of dedication, both on their own part and on the part of their parents to train for Olympic medal. So that kind of culture might not be easily understood by other people in the West. They just cannot comprehend what maybe this young lady has achieved. Yuven Wu is with the BBC's Chinese service. Thank you for your time. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. Anyone following the London Games on Twitter will have come across the hashtag NBCFail. Many users have lambasted NBC Universal for its coverage. Well, one of today's trending tags is Twitter Fail. The anger this time is directed at Twitter for suspending the account of an outspoken critic of NBC for 48 hours. That critic is British journalist Guy Adams, Los Angeles correspondent for the British paper The Independent. His account was suspended after NBC complained that he'd revealed private information by tweeting the email address of an NBC executive. Adams defended himself, saying the address was already publicly available. His account was reactivated earlier today. Media writer and blogger Dan Gilmore teaches digital media entrepreneurship at Arizona State. The shocking part was not so much that a big company like NBC would overreact or that Twitter itself would uh, find itself entangled in a business arrangement that caused it to do something uh, it shouldn't have done, but that people are realizing, and this is a really important part, that when we publish using other people's platforms, 
we have to remember that they are the owners of the platforms and they can do whatever they want with what we publish, including take it down. Well, one of the, the slightly frightening things about this incident is that uh, Twitter has joined in a partnership agreement with NBC to promote the Olympic Games and the tweets of NBC personalities. And and it certainly looks like in this case that corporate considerations trumped uh, freedom of speech. Uh, it, it does look as though corporate considerations were uh, paramount. One of the problems, of course, is that Twitter has been silent about what they did and why. And it would be great if they would uh, talk to us and tell us what was going on. And my earnest hope is that when they do talk to us, they will say, whoops, we made a big mistake. Sorry, we won't do that again. And also they should uh, make the rules more clear about what people can do with other people's emails. Now, how important do you think this moment is? Oh, I, I think it's important, but not epical. I think we're going to get past it and move on to something else that's interesting quickly. Uh, but this one does matter. If I think, as I wrote in The uh, Guardian, I think that this would be, uh, clearly would have been a defining moment for Twitter if they had not reinstated the account. And we still haven't had an explanation of what happened in, in complete explanation. So I don't I don't I think it's a assuming it all works out the way I hope it will, then it's it's a it's a good moment uh, in that a large and important company in the online space will have recognized a mistake and fixed it. Will you always remember where you were the moment Guy Adams Twitter account was shut off? Oh God no. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea where I was when it was shut off. I just, uh, you know, it was probably in the middle of the night or something. Yeah, but I, that's true. I, I was just, no, I, I'm, I'm actually a little bit surprised at how, uh, how much take up this got, uh, and how quickly I, I'm, and I'm very pleased that folks in the Twitter universe got angry and thought that this was unacceptable. Media writer, blogger, teacher Dan Gilmore. Thanks a lot. Glad to be with you. Well, Twitter does not comment on individual cases, but according to Guy Adams, Twitter emailed him to say NBC had retracted its complaint and therefore his account was unfrozen. You're listening to PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. Southern California may be the birthplace of skateboard culture, but skateboarding also flourished in an unlikely spot thousands of miles away. Teenagers in East Germany fell in love with the sport in the 1980s. Most of what they knew about skateboarding came from word of mouth and magazines smuggled across the border. Now a new documentary documents that time. It's called This Ain't California. Reporter Caitlin Carroll gives us a sneak preview. The film This Ain't California shows a lot of what you'd expect in a skateboard flick. Guys cruising down sidewalks, attempting crazy tricks, and taking hard falls. But this isn't just a skater fan film. It's also a look at what life was like for teenagers in East Germany. 
what I can remember is that I was like one of three guys in the class that were, were a little bit different. Ronald Feetz is one of the producers of the film. He grew up in East Berlin in the 1980s. Feetz remembers how difficult it was to be different as a teenager. News and entertainment from the West were banned. Anyone who rebelled was monitored by East Germany's secret police, the Stasi. He said it was totally isolating. West Germany was like right next to us in West Berlin, but it was already so far away you couldn't even imagine how far it was. And California was in another universe, hence the film's name, This Ain't California. But despite all the restrictions, East German teenagers still discovered one of the big trends hitting the United States and Western Europe. Vietz remembers the first time he saw skateboarders in East Berlin. And there were like a group of 20 years old guys sitting on Alexanderplatz and they had like a, oh. a, a, a bandana on. They had like bandanas on their heads. And he thought, wow, these guys are so cool. Where are they coming from? Are they from the West? And they're just some East guys who were like dressed like West guys. <laughs> the film focuses on a small group of skateboarders in East Berlin. Director Martin Persil says because materials were in short supply, they built their own boards and developed a unique style of skating. As they didn't have access to magazines or videos, they didn't have anyone telling them how to skate. So they just skated the way they think it's right. And maybe they saw some sort of photo somewhere at a friend who maybe got a magazine smuggled over or something. These teenagers got some help from skaters in the West who started sending them used skateboard parts. Persil says it was these friendships that finally got the unwelcome attention of the East German government. In the beginning was uh, that it was a, a Western sport that we don't need and we don't want and it's bad. The thinking changed once East German officials grasped the sport's popularity. They tried to control skateboarding by creating clubs with training schedules and uniforms. The skaters didn't accept or didn't, didn't use this, this offer from the state because they knew what it was about. It was about surveillance. The film screened recently at a skateboard trade show held in a former Stasi office building in Berlin. Outside, professionals practiced jumps. The audience included Americans and Germans. I'm Kenny Faith from uh, Pennsylvania. Hi, I'm Kristen from Dresden. And uh, what do you guys think about the movie? I thought it was awesome. It's really cool. Yeah, I really enjoyed it as well. It was interesting to see what was going on in East Germany. I mean, I grew up, but I was born... A year, uh, a year before the wall came down. So. And that's why producer Ronald Feetz wants to show people like Kristen Hausman the reality of growing up in East Germany. For him, the film is as much about skateboarding as it is about remembering his childhood. Yeah, it's a hard time. And now looking back, doing that skateboard film as a former East guy, it's like um, talking about a country that uh, doesn't exist anymore. You know, when you're, when you're from, from, from any other country, from America, from Turkey, from wherever, you have a place to, to go back to. But uh, we as East Berliners and East German people, we, we can't go back to the country we are from. After the Berlin Wall fell, East Germans had to adapt quickly to a world they'd been sheltered from for decades. But Feet says it was something he was ready for as a skateboarder. He knew how to get up and keep going after a big fall. For The World, I'm Caitlin Carroll, Berlin.
You can check out a trailer for This Ain't California at theworld.org. Germany, of course, is no longer divided between East and West. The country was reunified in 1990. Soon after reunification, Germany embarked on a massive and expensive effort to rebuild the eastern part of the country. More than $2 trillion worth of aid has flowed to the east. But now, with certain states and cities in the western part of the country feeling the economic pinch, some are beginning to question whether money sent east is money well spent. The world's Clark Boyd has been following this story. Clark, uh, give us some background here. $2 trillion, what's it been spent on and why? Well, the why part is soon after reunification, it became clear that uh, the eastern part of the country was going to need a serious upgrade when it came to infrastructure. Its industries were ailing. There was a feeling that those industries were never going to be able to compete now that it was part of a a federal Western European state. And so they decided to uh, transfer money to the east to build up mostly infrastructure projects and to try to revive the industry there. Because one of the main things they were concerned about is that, you know, soon after reunification, all the people in the east were going to move to the western part of the country and take jobs there. So the idea was, can we build up the industry in the east again to the point where people will stay? And how has this money been collected? Well, that's interesting. And to, to get the answer on that, I called up Thomas Kleiner Brockhoff, who is with the German Marshall Fund of the United States, and he filled me in. It was a tax levied on everybody, an income tax surcharge labeled as temporary, enabled those transfers. So temporary tax, uh, some 22 years later, I, I can imagine people aren't especially happy about that. Yeah, I mean, I think you sense in that clip, Aaron, a, a level of frustration there that many Germans feel about this, particularly from the western part of the country. Um, so now you do have uh, cities and areas in the West who are complaining about this, and they say it's time that we stop this. It's not just the taxing, though. It's the fact that how that tax money is being spent at this point. And actually, it's in some ways, it's a bit of a success story because they have pumped trillions of dollars in there. The infrastructure in some parts of the East are actually better now than in parts of the West. And so these cash-strapped Western cities and mayors and regions are looking at this and saying, hey, isn't it time that we just, you know, stop doing this? And, and can the, the cities and towns do anything about it? Some of them have approached Germany's constitutional court, and they're arguing against that. Now, the reason they've gone to the constitutional court is a great background part of this story, because the German federal state, after the war in 1949, actually set up a system of transfer payments between parts of West Germany. So the richer states in West Germany have been giving to the poorer parts of of West Germany for a long time. There are parts of Germany now, Bavaria in particular, which is saying, not only do we not want to pay for the East anymore— we don't want to pay for poorer parts of the West anymore. And you can imagine how galling it is for places like Bavaria, because not only are they having to pay for other cities in the West, not only are they having to pay for other cities in the East, they're having to fund Greece's bailout. Well, now that's exactly right, Aaron. And the reason that this issue within Germany is becoming such a sticking point right now is exactly because of all of the bailout talk that's been going on about Europe in general. And many are saying, you know, it's really interesting to look at the situation within Germany right now with these transfers and then compare it. It's kind of a microcosm of the larger problems with the Eurozone. The world's Clark Boyd. Thanks a lot. You're welcome, Aaron. Coming up, Saudi Arabia institutes a smoking ban. The government says no more water pipes in public. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Ahead, a young band leader in Colombia brings together his musical heroes for a salute to Tropicalia, the funky style that swept Latin America in the 1970s. The music that some of these guys recorded in the 70s, they sound even more 
like uh, risky than what you can hear today on the radio. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. The war in Syria is on video. It's a primary source for what's going on there, given the restrictions on reporters. But the videos come without verification or much context. The New York Times has a new online page that curates the video and images streaming out of Syria. It's called Watching Syria's War. A lot of the video is jerky, graphic, and hard to watch. This dramatic footage from Aleppo shows an attack on a convoy with a soldier leaping out of a burning tank. J. David Goodman is the site's editor. He says the images largely come from participants. The kinds of footage we're getting in many cases couldn't be gotten by a a traditional journalist because the risk is too great. And some of these mostly men are going out sometimes at the front of the line of people that are firing at a tank and documenting it. Because of that, they're very invested in the cause that they're fighting for. And so a lot of the video ends up coming to us from uh, people with a stake in one side of the fight. And that's a, something that we've tried to balance out by showing, at least when we can, images that are produced with a different frame or a different take. And so we thought, after having seen this stuff come out and after having sort of treated it in a sort of ad hoc way in articles and in blog posts, to really get a almost like a streaming presentation of the video that shows both a greater journalistic depth about what we can say about these videos and also gives the sense that there is this kind of constancy to what's going on there, that it isn't just, you know, we write an article and then wait for the next article, that there's stuff coming out almost continuously. Now, David, as you say, the videos that you have are often very vivid. Let's play one now. It's called Rebel Bomb Shakes Residential Neighborhood in Aleppo. What we have is a few gunmen peering over what seems to be a, a very thin concrete wall. So, so that is what? That explosion is what? So what we're seeing in the video is um, a group of men on top of a rooftop. And actually, this video was posted along with uh, two others that seemed to occur just before and just after the um, the bombing. And what you see are men standing with um, assault rifles and in Aleppo. And we see them standing on, the, on this very low wall. In an earlier clip, they're shooting over the wall at the building. And then they sort of peer down, and the camera peers down as well. And we see an explosion coming out of uh, what looks to be the first floor of one of the buildings. But in the following video, we see several floors of one of the buildings have been more or less flattened. And the armed men from the rooftop yell down, accusing the man, a man who emerges from that rubble of being part of the government fighters who are known as Shabiha. And they appear to detain him in some way. And what happens to that man wasn't clear to us, at least at this point. David, some of this is really quite stunning. Some of it is shocking, incredible stuff. And at this moment in time, I guess it's all we can get. But in wars of the past, in the last few decades, this stuff would have been shot by cameramen from networks or news organizations. And we would know quite a bit more about its authenticity. How do you know these days what it is we're watching? 
The buildings in Aleppo look like the buildings in Damascus, look like the buildings in Baghdad. It's very hard to know what you're seeing. Right. And that was one of the biggest framing devices that we wanted to include. And so the project has two sections, which are aptly titled What We Know and What We Don't Know, to give a sense of here are the things that give us confidence in this video, that this video is what it's saying it is. But here are some things that, you know, we just can't tell at this distance and, you know, given these circumstances. And the project is also meant to give us a way to update those fields as we get more information. In fact, one clip of a a man giving a a fairly bold and and fiery speech at a mosque in Aleppo, we later learned from activists who said that he had been killed on on Sunday. So we updated that post to say this isn't just a one-off moment in the conflict, but these people, you know, are still living in these zones. and, And this guy who went off very dramatically from the the mosque with an assault rifle, was later killed in battle. Hmm. Now, aside from the authenticity of the videos, uh, another criticism that you've received is that some of them are are quite graphic. We'll play an example here. It's called Explosion Rips Through Funeral Procession. It's from July 3rd, and the video shows a funeral procession carrying a body aloft. Let's play this little bit. Now, this is essentially an explosion killing people that we see on video. What sort of journalistic questions does this raise for you? This was clearly something that had journalistic value that we felt needed to be shared with our readers. At the same time, we have to balance the the obviously disturbing nature of images like this. And in fact, the, the bombing moment while very disturbing, is not the worst of the clips that came out of that um, event. And part of why we had confidence that this was true in an event that wasn't staged or represented from somewhere else is that there was a lot of other sort of ancillary video of the aftermath that matched up with things that we could confirm from the area and from the same sources of video as the original bombing. This is a sort of fine line that we're walking here, but we want to both give access to readers who may be interested in, in getting the verification that they want to see with a clip like this without forcing others who want to know what's going on with Syria but don't necessarily want to see every gruesome detail. Let both people into this to this story. That's, that's J. David Goodman of the New York Times' new online page, Watching Syria's War. We have a video from the site of Syrian rebels collecting garbage to curry favor with Aleppo residents. It's at theworld.org. Saudi Arabia has taken a dramatic step. Yesterday, it banned smoking in government offices and most public places. That includes restaurants, cafes, and shopping malls. The ban covers the smoking of water pipes, or shisha, as well as selling tobacco to those under 18. The interior minister, Prince Ahmed bin Abdulaziz, ordered the ban, saying Islam urges the preservation of public health. Laura Bashrahil is a reporter with the Saudi Gazette. She's been gauging public reaction to the ban. Smoking is very popular here. You have uh, teenagers smoking. You have elders smoking. So it's everywhere. Do you smoke yourself? Uh, Yes, I smoke shisha. (laughs) Well, that's actually the most interesting thing I find because shisha, these water pipes with uh, fruit-flavored tobacco, are a part of um, Saudi and, and Middle Eastern culture. They're almost in every restaurant and every cafe. Has this been talked about for a while, or, or did it just come up all of a sudden? Uh, no, there's been uh, a smoking ban in airports uh, last year, and they implemented it. And a few years back, they said also that they're going to remove the shisha, the water pipes from cafes, but nothing happened. 
especially businessmen who owns those restaurants and cafes. They don't want their business to go down. Yeah. How do you think they'll deal with that? Because as you said, um, this is a, a big part of uh, what you do at cafes and restaurants. Uh, I actually doubt that there will be a strong implementation in cafes because there have been so many rumors a few years back that there are not going to be shishas in restaurants, but n- nothing happened. If you, if you own a restaurant that doesn't sell water pipes, your business will go down. Is there any official way around this ban? Can a restaurant have a dedicated shisha room or can they, they do it on <laughs> porches or something like that? Uh, well, we do have outdoors, um, yeah. especially, but, you know, the weather in Saudi is very hot and very humid, especially this time of the year. So many people are saying, okay, there will be outdoors. For example, like London, we have them outdoors. But what we're going to do with the weather? We're not like the West. We don't have their weather. So we're going to suffer in the heat or we're not, not going to go outside. So are, are you um, just a little bit maybe happy about the ban it'll uh <laughs> it'll keep you from smoking too much shisha uh yeah of course i mean um <laughs> yesterday i was out with my friends and there were teenagers 16 15 a group of teenagers together they're all smoking shishas and cigarettes even so this is something that i don't want to see anymore in the country especially the whole thing about banning uh selling cigarettes for those who are under 18 that's very important i wish they actually implemented because we do need it. Laura Bashrahil is a reporter with the Saudi Gazette. She's been writing about uh, the smoking ban that just went into effect. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Aaron. Have a nice day. Honduras has been going through an especially rough patch. A military coup in 2009 ousted the Central American country's president. Drug violence has helped give it the world's highest murder rate. And on top of that, the country's impoverished. Things are so bad that Honduran officials are considering something drastic. They want to build an experimental city to give the country a fresh start. Reporter John Otis has the story. Children frolic on a Caribbean beach near the Honduran town of Trujillo. It's a sparsely populated area of farmers and fishermen, so it's hard to imagine a Hong Kong-like metropolis rising from the sand. But that's exactly what the country's politicians have in mind. Last year, the Honduran Congress passed a constitutional amendment allowing for the creation of a semi-autonomous city that would have its own governing rules and a degree of foreign supervision. The plan was inspired by Paul Romer. He's a U.S. economist who has been promoting what he calls charter cities. So I was asked by the, the president of Honduras, who said that we need to do this project. This is important. This could be the way forward for our country. Romer proposes that the new city have a governing charter made up of the best political and economic rules from around the world. Partner nations would provide oversight, guidance, and more. For example, the Honduran judicial system is widely viewed as slow and corrupt. So, the island nation of Mauritius has agreed to allow its highly respected Supreme Court to serve as the court of appeals for a Honduran charter city. Supporters say charter cities could serve as catalysts for reform in the rest of Honduras. Romer says they could also persuade some of the 75,000 Hondurans who immigrate illegally to the U.S. each year to stay home. Trujillo on the Caribbean coast is one of the oldest towns in Honduras. 
Except for the Catholic church that dominates the town square, there's not much here. In fact, its backwardness inspired the visiting American writer O. Henry to coin the term Banana Republic. But now, Honduran politicians are considering the area around Trujillo for an ultra-modern charter city. We need a system where we can have ships, rail, trucks, and planes. Dino Rieti is a Honduran architect who's advising the government on the charter city plan. He envisions an international airport and transoceanic railroad near Trujillo. It's a utopic, yes, but also it's a hope, it's a new way of thinking. A few projects are already going up in anticipation of a charter city. Rieti is managing construction of a combined cruise ship marina and shopping mall in Trujillo. The marina provides work for hundreds of local residents. Building a whole new city would create many more jobs. They are badly needed, according to Joel Lewis, a construction worker at the marina. In Trujillo, job is very hard to get, very hard. People suffer, suffer a lot for jobs. This military helicopter buzzing over Trujillo helps explain why. Government troops are battling drug traffickers, and the spike in violence has dragged down the economy. What's more, the Caribbean coast never fully recovered from Hurricane Mitch in 1998, which wiped out the local banana trade. William Lawrence is a U.S. developer who moved to Trujillo four years ago. He said foreign investors are intrigued by the prospect of a charter city. We've had Americans come. Uh, there are Canadians here. Uh, the people have been here from Great Britain. We have some interest stirred up in South Korea. Money to construct the charter city would come from leasing and selling land to foreign investors. Still, Hondurans are a long way from laying the first brick. The constitutional amendment allowing for a charter city is being challenged in the Honduran Supreme Court. The country's former attorney general recently called the plan 21st century colonialism. Even supporters, like Rieti, worry about outsized foreign influence and environmental damage. You, you see this beautiful place? You see how beautiful it is? But given the nation's downward spiral, Rieti says it may be time for Honduras to try something radically different. We are giving to the investors the best that we can. Now they have to do the best for the country, right? For the world, I'm John Otis, Trujillo, Honduras. And we have a slideshow of images from Trujillo at theworld.org. We're staying in Latin America for our Geo Quiz. We're in Colombia, looking for the name of the country's second city. In the 1980s, this city was reputed to be the most violent in the world. But the murder rate is way down, and the city is now known as a mecca for the arts. The painter and sculptor Fernando Botero was born here, and it's also where you'll find the famous Discos Fuentes recording studio. Here's how Colombian bandleader Mario Galeano describes the studio. It's the same as if we would have recorded in Studio One in Jamaica, you know, or the... I don't know, Abbey Road, Abbey Road or whatever, yeah. you know, it's like just like that. We'll hear music recorded at Discos Fuentes in a few minutes, and we'll name the city in question.
This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World. Disco Fuentes is one of the most famous record labels and studios in the world, and it's in Medellin, Colombia, the answer to today's GeoQuiz. It was at Disco Fuentes where Colombian musician Mario Galliano and British DJ Will Holland formed Onda Tropica. It's an eclectic group of musicians from all the musical genres Colombia is known for, cumbia, fandango, and more. Here's one of their songs called Punquero Sonidero. Onda Tropica is an ensemble with over 40 musicians. Band leader Mario Galliano says it was a challenge, but also a dream to get so many performers to work together. When we started to make the list of the guys that we wanted to collaborate with, it just started to grow and grow and grow and grow. And when we know, I mean, when we realized that we could invite them, you know, and have them over, fly them to the city, and uh, have them in the studio, we said, well, why not? Doesn't it make it hard though, working with so many people? No, you know what? It it seemed it worked so easy because um, we recorded this like in a proper big and all the band playing together. And uh, yeah, everybody was just happy to do it and hanging out. And it's just really easy. I, I think it uh, numbers were were a plus for us in this occasion. Now, when you um, thought about what artist to match with what song, did you have the song first or you thought of the artist first? Well, the thing is that uh, in Colombia we have so many different like styles of tropical music mm-hmm. that we organize the artists that we invited into the different um, like styles. You know, so when you wanted to record some music from the Pacific coast, then we had this singer in mind and and this marimba player in mind, and then these other types of styles from the Atlantic coast. So yeah, it's just more to do with styles than than uh, and a bit with personalities, of course. Yeah, and as you mentioned, there are lots and lots of different styles on this album, which is what makes it so interesting and so fun. Let's take the song Suena. It's a hip-hop song set against a Colombian beat. It features singer Ana Tiju. Uh, Let's take a listen. Cuando suena la mezcla de la música fresca, cumbia colombiana se baila hasta que amanezca. No ponga esa cara, no te quedes ya parada. Solo goza de este ritmo que se baila de entrada y deja a tu pareja que lleve hasta la parada. Siente todo el ritmo distinto en el recinto. Deja la timidez y completa este pasito. Saca tu talento que llegó este momento donde todo se trata de sacar el sentimiento. La América Latina la tiendo en este momento. Suena. I wonder who the the target audience is for this because it is so diverse. Is that is that the way people in Colombia or South America listen to music? A lot of different styles at once. Yeah, definitely. But for us, it's very important to like try to cover as much like generations as possible because. Sometimes there is a thought between some uh, uh, young uh, guys or girls that maybe some of these styles are from the past, 
we wanted to really show everybody that this music is still very contemporary and it has a lot of things to show and a lot of things to say. And that's why we also wanted to do this inter, like this exchange between the older generation and the newer generation of tropical musicians. Mario, how old are you? I'm 34 years old. Yeah, you're a young guy. Some of the band is um, the original guys from the 70s? Yeah, I mean, we have um, like around these 40 plus musicians that we recorded. Yeah. I would say around uh, 30 or 25 of them are all like in their 50s, 60s, 70s or 80s. And um, the rest of us, we are yeah, like in our 30s, like the younger generation. Now, the, the album was recorded in the famous Disco Fuentes studio in Medellin, Colombia, a place you call classic and mythical. Why did yeah. you want to be there? <laughs> well, it's very classic. I mean, it's uh, the oldest label in Latin America. Uh, it's around 85 years old. Uh, and uh, it's a, I mean, it has so much history. And like all the top records that you want to hear from the 50s, 60s, 70s, they come from Discos Fuentes, you know, like it's the same as if we would have recorded in Studio One in Jamaica, you know, or the, I don't know, Abbey, Abbey Road, Road or whatever, yeah. you know, it's like just like that. So it's a place just full of energy and uh, every heavy musician in Colombia passed through that studio. So, yeah, it was very emotional to be there as well. Let's listen to another song. It's called Libya. And as the name suggests, there's a, a bit of a Middle Eastern influence to it. We'll hear a bit, and then you can tell us about it. Perfect. So, Mario Galliano, am I, I right that it is a Middle Eastern influence? Uh, yeah, there is a little bit of that. Uh, anyway, like, um, there's a very nice meeting point between, like, Klezmer, Balkanic, and Middle Eastern traditions with uh, some of the Colombian stuff. I always uh, think it has to do, like, with the influence that came in the earlier 20th century to the coast of Colombia. Then you can see that, for example, Klezmer and cumbia or like Balkan and cumbia can be easily mixed. Onda Tropica has been out on the road playing dates in the U.S. and Europe. How do you do that with so many musicians on board? Well, it's very expensive, first of all. <laughs> and yeah, it's hard because we're 13 people traveling. And as I told you, half of the band is like 70 plus years old. Yeah. So it's quite an experience to travel with the, with the older guys. But so far, luckily, nobody's gotten sick or anything. So they're okay, yeah. Mario Galliano, good luck on the rest of the tour um, as you head off to Europe. Mario Galliano is band leader of Onda Tropico. Thanks so much. Thank you very much.
Om the Tropicos musicians, young and old, get into the groove at New York City's Lincoln Center. We've got photos by Marissa Neff, who's blogging all summer for us about music in New York. Her most recent post is about Carnival, arriving way early in Brooklyn. That's all at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Aaron Schachter, and we are back tomorrow. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported by the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, by contributors to the PRI Program Fund, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can, and the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet. PRI Public Radio International